Welcome to the Talking Legal Ed podcast with Professors Linda Jellum and Billy Joe Kaufman. In each episode, we explore cutting-edge legal issues with renowned legal scholars and teachers. In these explorations, we discuss the legal doctrines implicated in the issues we tackle. But perhaps more importantly, we look at how legal educators can bring these issues alive in the classroom. Good morning, Linda. I am so excited. We have my former colleague, Congressman Jamie Raskin here to talk with us today about his latest book, Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. Yes, and what a compelling read. As you know, he lost his son Tommy to suicide just a week before the insurrection on January 6th. He was at the Capitol with his family trying to ensure that the election results would be certified. His book weaves in his loss with his defense of the rule of law in a compelling and unusual way. Even after all of that, he has optimism for the future and ideas for the role we all must play to protect our democracy. Well, let's talk to Congressman Raskin. Congressman Raskin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today on Talking Legal Ed. We're we're thrilled to have you here to talk about your latest book, Unthinkable, Trauma, Truth, and the Trials of American Democracy. As I mentioned to you, I read it um, in the last two weeks. It's it's a really it's a page turner. It's it's very well written uh, and it flows beautifully. And one of the thoughts that came to me as I was reading uh, the book is that I I began to see Tommy, uh, even at a young age, as your teacher and mentor. Is that a fair characterization, you think, of the relationship that the two of you had? And let me also say, by the way, we are, are so sorry for your loss. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for your kind words and thank you for your condolences. You know, I try to describe in the book that I had multiple relationships with Tommy and that he was my student for a long time, um, but he became something like a teacher and uh, a guide for me. And I certainly feel that way today. And he was a great teacher. He, he, when he, when he was at Harvard Law School, he was teaching undergraduates. He taught in the, the justice class with Michael Sandel there. Um, and I still hear from his students frequently. He was a remarkable teacher and he loved his students. And he, you know, they would write a page and he would write three or four pages about what they had written. He made it after giving them their grades, and he really struggled with the whole idea of a curve, you know. Um, but after giving them grades, he he made contributions in each of their names to different charities that he thought were fitting for each of them. He is he came across as such a remarkable spirit to me, and just how much he guided you. I think as you were going through the the uh, impeachment 2.0. I, that process, I just felt like he was there as your as your guide. Well, yeah, I felt he was very much in my heart. He was in my chest, and I referred frequently to his his wisdom and his insights, his humor, his way of looking at the world. And still, I do. I miss him sharply. You know, one thing that is of interest to me is you were a premier con law professor at the Washington College of Law. When you're in the role of congressman, how do you feel about what you taught students and what 
works the exact same way or doesn't seem to work at all with con law and democracy? And are you ever saddened by by things that you think should be working better or differently? Or do you think, boy, I didn't tell the students this. (laughs) How does that play out? Well, you know, I mean, the Constitution should not be taught. It cannot be taught as a set of rules, certainly not anymore, if ever it was, because it's more, much more a set of struggles and conflicts. And we have to teach people the, the history and the vernacular and the culture of these profound struggles that we're in. But nobody should take the Constitution for granted in any way. Uh, the Constitution is something you got to fight for if you believe in it. And we've got to make it meaningful. You know, Tocqueville said in Democracy in America that democracy and voting rights in our country are something that's always either constricting and shriveling away or it's something that's growing and expanding. And we've been in a contractionary phase where democracy really has been languishing and shriveling on the vine and we need to make democracy grow again Uh, and we got to make the the value of constitutional democracy apparent and transparent to everybody in in the last chapter actually the epilogue of your book after you update everyone on sort of how the family is doing and you finish with yourself you talk about you know you're an optimistic person but you have some fears and concerns going forward about what might happen in 2022 or more importantly, 2024. Is there a role that law professors and law schools have in trying to reestablish the rule of law? Well, we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of bad things happen lately, right? I mean, if law schools and law professors and law students and lawyers don't have a role, an essential role in reviving and fortifying constitutional democracy, then what is the role of lawyers and law students and law professors? That's got to be our central role. So yeah, I've got a lot of fears. And I mean, well, you know, one of the problems in law schools, and you know, forgive me for speaking as an outsider here, but I've been away now for, I don't know, I guess like six years. It was a huge part of my life. I was a law professor for 25 years. But I mean, there's certain things that we're afraid of. There are certain indelicacies, like you don't talk about political parties, you know, and I don't know how you can talk about our current situation without talking about political parties and the role that parties play and the the role that the framers thought they might play, the role they've come to play, the dangers associated now with that militant myopic partisanship or cultishness, really. So, you know, I've been very much looking forward to talking to you guys, but I've also been afraid because I'm aware that I'm back in law school universe where there are certain things you've got to pretend don't exist. And that's that's gotten tough for me now, you know. And I'm speaking to somebody, I'm looking at the, the bust of Abraham Lincoln on my desk, which I got from my grandfather. Nobody was more beloved or revered than Lincoln, the founder of the Republican Party here. But This is not Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party. This is Donald Trump's party. And 
to my mind, speaking personally, I hope I don't get ejected from your show, but <laughs> you know, he has turned it into a, an authoritarian cult of personality, like the kind of cults we try to teach our kids to stay away from. Congressman, one thing that's interesting to me is just a television watcher is when I see some of your colleagues who graduated from the same Harvard Law School, had the same Lawrence tribe as their con law professor that you did, and they are so diabolically at the other end of somewhere. Like, how'd that happen? <laughs> well, yeah. And I, I mean, <laughs> look, I, I think that's worthy of some serious investigation. I mean, I, I take it the allusion is to uh, Ted Cruz, who is a, a graduate of Harvard Law School. I think Larry Tribe, who's my revered constitutional law professor, uh, was also his professor. I mean, you know, people have their own values. They make their own choices. You can't blame uh, in general, you can't blame law schools for what <laughs> right. becomes of any of us, you know. But, is it money? Is it money? Well, I, I don't know that it's I don't know that it's that simple. I mean, I mean, Ted Cruz is somebody, if you look at it, who uh, called Donald Trump uh, a sniveling coward, a compulsive <laughs> liar, I think a, a cheater, somebody to wholly unfit to hold the presidency. And, and Donald Trump had similar things to say about him. I mean, he said his father had assassinated John F. Kennedy. I think he insulted uh, his wife's uh, looks. And so they went through all of that. You would think he would be one person who would be prepared to live up to his oath of office, both to uphold and defend the constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, but also to uphold his oath as a juror to render impartial justice only to decide upon the facts and the law. But I think it demonstrates the potential corruption of partisanship or certain kinds of party allegiance and party rule. At some point, he must have made the judgment that Donald Trump was the alpha male in the GOP. He controlled a lot of the endorsements. He controlled what the rank and file was going to think. He controlled the flow of conspiracy theory, propaganda, and disinformation in the party. And he was afraid of him. He didn't want to take him on. So I think it's got a lot to do with cowardice and a kind of invertebrate submission to the guy who gets out on top. But that's why I will say publicly to my colleagues, that is not what it means to be in public life and to be a political leader. That's what it means to be in a religious or political cult. And when all of this is over, they're going to be fit only for, you know, selling flowers and incense at Dulles Airport or something like that. You know, like you've got you can't you can't suspend your own critical thinking skills when you're in public life and you can't treat a political party like a religious cult where whoever gets in charge of it is going to tell you what to do. That's dangerous. I mean, political parties are not even mentioned in our Constitution much less a two-party system, much less two specific parties. I mean, Lincoln's beloved Republican Party was a new party that replaced the Whigs because it spoke to the time. So maybe a new party comes along and replaces that party. It certainly deserves to be replaced, in, again, in, in my humble view, 
maybe our party does too, you know, but we need to have a free market in political ideas, just like a free market in economics and sports and that kind of competition is a good thing. It seemed to me that you were saying um, a moment ago that one of the difficulties in law schools, and I think this is really true, is that sometimes it's very hard for professors to show their political viewpoints on things uh, that are happening. And I think it's become increasingly more difficult over the year. Um, part of that may be that, you know, there are evaluations in play, and particularly for someone who's untenured, you might be concerned if you um, challenge uh, President Trump for, for who and what he is, uh, that those might come back negative. But there's there's also uh, something going on here that you were talking about that I sort of have tuned into as an administrative law teacher. It seems to me, and you say this in the book, right, that the Congress's job is to govern. And Congress isn't governing right now. I don't know how long it's been, but a while that Congress is just essentially not getting much done. We've got the filibuster, which prevents um, the party in power from getting things accomplished. We've got, you know, another number of other structures going on. And so what we have seen instead is an increase in the presidential power, right? The president's power has been expanding at the same time we've seen Congress's power constricting. And do you think that we need to somehow find a way to readdress that situation? And if so, how do we do it? Is the answer simply to get rid of the filibuster? Well, let me let me take two of your points. And the first point, when I say that we should be able to talk about partisan dynamics, I'm not saying that professors should get up and proselytize whatever their political views are. On the contrary, I think that they should be able to talk about everything that's going on in the political system as it relates to constitutional law or administrative law or whatever it might be. I mean, you know, we, we should be grown up about that. We shouldn't pretend as if they're not differences in point of view. I mean, the framers were pretty grown up about that. I mean, they tried to write a constitution uh, against what Madison called faction in Federalist 10, but they, he understood, all of them understood, that faction just goes in human nature. You know, I mean, you get a group of people together where it's, whether it's a city council, a school board, the House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, a faculty meeting, a book club, people are going to form little groups and they're going to disagree about stuff. Great. I mean, I love partisanship for that reason. It shows we've got a First Amendment that allows people to express themselves and people can disagree. The alternative is, you know, we all become what Vladimir Putin wants, one party dictatorship states. So we should celebrate partisanship in different political views. But, you know, this is the point I was trying to make at the trial and I've tried to make my colleagues, we, we can use parties to help articulate political agendas, organize agendas, accentuate different points of view. But when the election's over, after we fought like cats and dogs, those of us who aspire and attain to public office have a special duty to remember that, well, what the word party means. It comes from the French word parti, which means a part. Our party is just part of the whole. We have to try to speak for everybody. We know how to be nonpartisan. And if you come to my district office in Rockville, Maryland, and you got a problem with Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid or PPP, we don't ask you, are you a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Green or Independent? We just say, do you live in the 8th District? If you live in my district, we will go to bat for you. We know how to do that. That's the thinking cap that I wanted the senators to put on. 
you know, that's why originally, you know, I wanted them not to be seated according to political party, which is a crazy way for a jury to sit. You know, if you're, there's a murder trial, people aren't sitting according to political party registration. They're, they're seated randomly or alphabetically. Like that, that's the mentality I want people to have rather than putting their party first. That's why, to my mind, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, they're such heroes. The, the Republicans, the 10 Republicans were able to vote to impeach Donald Trump for committing what clearly are high crimes and misdemeanors. They're heroes in my mind or they're at, least, at the very least they're constitutional patriots and the seven Republican senators who joined all 50 who did their job by voting to convict, I think in the face of overwhelming evidence. So anyway, that's that's on the first point. I mean, and yes, I've made th this other point, Linda, about how a lot of what we saw during the Trump administration was the executive branch running away with the powers of Congress and you know, I don't want to give you my whole constitutional worldview or anything, but let me just say a word about the preamble to the Constitution, which most of us don't teach, right? We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and provide to ourselves and our posterity the blessings of liberty, do hereby ordain and establish the Constitution of the United States of America. That one sentence action plan for America, that, that mission statement for America is followed by Article One. All legislative power is vested in the Congress of the United States. It goes right to the representatives of the people. And then you get this marvelous elucidation of all the powers that Congress has to regulate commerce domestically, internationally, to declare war, to fight the pirates, you know, intellectual property, naturalization, and then by extension, immigration, you name it, all the powers, and then Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, and all other powers necessary and proper to the execution of the foregoing powers. You go through all that, then you get to Article 2, which says the executive power is vested in the President of the United States. Four short sections. The fourth section is all about how you impeach a president for committing treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors. And what's the core function of the president? To take care that the laws are faithfully executed, to execute and implement the laws that we've created and to be commander in chief, not of the country, not of the government, not even of the armed forces, but of the army and the Navy when called into actual service and insurrection. It's a very circumscribed, constrained, defined role for the president. And we have a presidency that has just consumed everything else. And we saw it under Donald Trump. That's just the cartoon example of a president who actually goes out and says, and then I've got my article two, which my lawyers tell me means I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a capsizing of the constitutional understanding of the relationship between Congress and the president. The, the phrase checks and balances, by the way, appears only once in the Federalist Papers, it's not referring to the relationship among the three branches. It's referring to the relationship between the House and the Senate. I think that the, the framers saw Congress as very clearly, as Madison said, the predominant branch, the lawmaking branch, the role of the president who didn't even have a role in the Articles of Association or the Articles of Confederation, but the role is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. There's a reason why Congress has the power to impeach and try and convict him the president and he doesn't have the power to impeach and convict and try us.
It's because yes. he'd the, like it though. He would have liked it. The, it's because of the fear that our framers had of runaway presidential power or monarchical power of what one person can do. So if we have a Congress that is basically in many ways at an impasse or many through throughout the last few years uh, has seemed to, how do you fix that? I mean, what the president, some of the presidents have done have said, well, I'll just fill in, in the void sometimes in ways that maybe we might like, like with the Dreamers Act and maybe in ways that we don't like with putting up a no. wall, for example. Well, this is why I come back to speaking the unmentionable. I don't think you can understand what's happened to us without looking at the role of partisanship generally, but also a specific political party, which not only refuses to accept the results of our elections, which you would think is the primary uh, foremost obligation of a political party in a democracy to say, if we win, great, let's go celebrate and let's get to work. If we lose, that's too bad. Let's figure out what we did wrong and we'll work it out next time. I mean, we just lost, the Democrats just lost a big election for governor in Virginia. We didn't storm the Virginia state Capitol and beat the daylights out of police officers and hit them over the head with steel pipes and Confederate battle flags, much less did we go around lying about the election and trying to cast doubt on the whole governmental process. So, you know, that's a, that's a very tricky problem, what you do about that. I mean, one thing that I've seen, if you studied the history of coups and fascist assaults on constitutional order in other societies, the liberal and progressive parties, the left, broadly speaking, cannot defeat fascist insurrections and coups by itself, never has. It's only when the left and the center right come together and say, we're going to defend the idea of a constitutional order and a constitutional framework. That's why I'm so afraid about you know, where we are in America today, because I would love to be able to say, yeah, everything was solved when we did the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump in the Senate, but we ended with an ambiguous result. Yes, it was a resounding bipartisan and bicameral, you know, 57 to 43 vote uh, in the Senate, similar commanding majority in the House to impeach, but we didn't get to that two thirds threshold. Donald Trump is still uh, at large, and I think he still continues to disrespect the basic contours of our constitutional order. So Congressman, you were instrumental in the founding of the Marshall Brennan program, which has been incredibly successful and has some of the same goals in teaching high school students. I know Tommy was involved with the program as well, but you have taken that like another step with a summer program. Is that democracy? Democracy Summer, which is political, it's partisan, it's part of my campaign, but it, it is spread <laughs> across the country. But yes, I did, you, you have discerned my basic MO, Billy. I mean, I love <laughs> to be with young people and I love the hope and the idealism of young people and their energy. And so my campaign, you know, I spend no money on consultants, TV, radio, direct mail, any of that stuff. It goes into a school for young people to teach them about the history of social and political change, and then to teach them how to register voters, educate voters, conduct a canvas, do digital organizing, all that stuff. 
And this year we're gonna have uh, 60 members of Congress around the country joining me in Democracy Summer. So you know, we'll do the nationwide Zooms. We did this last year. We kicked it off with the great Bob Moses, who alas, we lost at the end of the summer. But we're gonna do it again. And then we're gonna have, uh, we're hoping more than a thousand young people on the ground. I actually relate that back to one of our former deans. Uh, What was terrific when I came to WCL was, as you know, Dean Grossman had this say yes mentality. And I said yes to every faculty member, whether it be a book, a database, a law review. And it was liberating. Luckily, at the time, we had funds. But it's so much better than saying no. And we did a lot of good with some of that say yes. I don't know if that had anything to do with his history in surviving the Pinochet coup, but he seemed to want to release faculty to do good and to think and to plan and to do things for students. And I I just thought that your democracy summer is, is just a continuance of that doing good not in such a directed in-class civics class, uh, but they get out there and and do the good with real life people. Well, I appreciate that, Billy Joe. Um, And yeah, the Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy Project, which we launched with the families of Thurgood Marshall William Brennan, was a a core experience for me as a law professor. Um, And uh, all of my kids were involved in it one way or another, tangentially, and of course, thousands of law students have been involved both in WCL and around the country because it's now at 20 different law schools where they're going out and they're teaching high school students about the constitution, about the bill of rights. And, you know, I'd always felt that we kind of have a surplus of consciousness at the law schools to the point where people are, you know, writing law review articles about Foucault and Derrida and so on. Uh, (laughs) But And we have such a deficit of constitutional literacy and understanding, obviously, in the country that sometimes goes to the highest levels of government. And so that we should mobilize the idealism and the energy of these law students to go out into our cities and towns where our law schools are to teach high school students about the Constitution. And I, you know, I wrote a book for that project called We the Students, which is now being um, the, the Republicans in Texas are trying to censor. (laughs) And a a reporter from Texas called me and said, they're trying to censor your book, We the Students. Uh, What do you think? I said, well, just tell them to read chapters two and three before they censor it, because it's all about the First Amendment and the the right of people in school to read books, uh, even if other people disagree with the books. (laughs) So in in the book, you talk a lot about the Democracy Summer and bringing young people to get them involved in your um, campaign, because if they could put something on their resumes, they could feel like they were doing something very productive. And yet, of course, once they start getting involved, they get very interesting, very interested in the changes that they can make. And then in addition, at the end of the book, you talk a lot about how our demographics are shifting so much that really Hillary Clinton won by three million votes. Joe Biden won, I think it was seven and a half, maybe, um, that you said. And so the demographics are there. The problem that we have is getting the people involved, getting the the, the young students to care. Um, and your Democracy Summer is one way to do that. The Marshall Project we were just talking about is another way with law students um, doing it as well. But it seems to me, if we want to cure this uh, problem that we have, and problem might be too light of a word, 
we're going to need for the young people to get involved as well and not just sit back and let the, you know, the, the older generations take care of it. And so I hope that the democracy that I hadn't heard about the democracy summer before, but I love that there are going to be a lot more representatives that will be using that system as well. Is there anything else that we should be doing along those lines? Well, we have experienced this demolition of critical thinking skills in the population, which is how we get to a point of violent insurrections and coups against the government and things that certainly I never thought I would see in my lifetime growing up or, you know, even 10 years ago, I just never dreamed that, that America would be at this point. The opposite of the propaganda, the disinformation, the conspiracy theory that have been the seedbed for this kind of derangement in the public, the opposite of all that is education, generally. I mean, that is the antidote to fanaticism. And so we've got to educate people about the history of our own country, we got to educate people about the history of the Constitution, the struggle to make our Constitution more democratic, the struggle to create a more perfect union, and to get people, young people, back involved in that process. And I tell them all the time that the pessimism, the cynicism, the apathy, the negativity is all a strategy to demobilize and to demoralize people. So don't give into that strategy. And you might think it's a personal problem you're having. It's not. There's been a very concerted, systematic effort to try to turn people off from politics, to sour people on government, to make people think that everything sucks. That benefits, in all of human history, that benefits the most authoritarian or dictatorial or fascist forces in the society. So we got to get people back into the hope business and back into education and understanding what it means to be a democracy. Our framers were adamant about that. You know, Madison said, those who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power that knowledge gives if we're going to be our own governors. And it's so true. So, you know, one thing, I push back a little bit on this. You said that um, they're not accepting the election results. But to be fair, they're not accepting the, the election results in one specific case and one specific case only. They're more than happy to accept their own election results, correct? But it's only uh, the president that they're going to fight on, which seems a little disingenuous to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I, well we, had, we had people from Arizona, people from Georgia, people from Pennsylvania who had just been elected in the exact, exact same election on the same ballot that Donald Trump lost on, getting up and saying it was a fraud, it was stolen, it was corruption, despite the fact that more than 60 federal and state courts rejected every allegation of electoral fraud and corruption, including eight judges, federal judges who'd been nominated to the bench by Donald Trump himself. So, I mean, future generations will come back to regard with absolute amazement that we could be at this point of cognitive uh, self-delusion and derangement in the country where tens of millions of people follow one guy who can't stand to admit he lost and is too too wed to his particular model of money making, which involves holding public office now, that he would try to overturn our whole system. And millions of people follow him in that. It's just a startling thing. I know from the book and from the incredible documentary, I thought the documentary that was on MSNBC was just 
incredible. Uh, I've been in your home and I thought, wow, this is like in his home. I thought that Tabitha and the family went with you on January 6th to, to make sure that you were safe, but then you were all put at such risk at a place that all Americans should be able to feel safe is in the U.S. Capitol. Many of us went there on junior high trips or high school. I can remember Bill Clinton going to high school day. And when I saw the breakage and the, let alone the people that were hurt, I, I know you were so fearful of for your family when they were trying to make you safe. <laughs> Are they okay? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was heartbreaking to me when Tabitha said she didn't want to come back to the Capitol. I talked about that at the trial. The good news is she did come back a year <laughs> later. She had an invitation to come back from Anderson Cooper, who lost his brother, who took his own life. And he spoke to Tabitha and was very sensitive and really thoughtful. And so she decided to come back. When he asked her, well, why did you come back? Uh, she said, um, well, you know, my dad and his colleagues go back every day and the, the maintenance workers go back every day and the staff people go back every day and I can come back at least once in a while. And so, it, you know, democracy, like the capital itself, it belongs to all of us. And it means it's something that all of us have got to take care of. So on the January 6th Select Committee, just like we're figuring out how to fortify our windows and doors so that they're not so easily smashed, we more significantly have to figure out how to fortify our democratic institutions to protect everybody's right to vote and to insulate our elections against an assault from the side or from above. Because you know what's going on in a lot of states now is an effort to replace bipartisan election administration with partisan election administration. It's a very dangerous thing. I know we're getting close to the end of our time here, um, Congressman. There are two final things I, I wanted to mention. One, I think is just one of the funniest points of the book. You know, there's, it, it's a lot, it's a hard read in the sense that it's hard to read what happened. It's a compelling read uh, because you, you weave it so well. But one of the funniest points was when you talked about the police officers uh, who worked in the Capitol, who the following day were taking phone calls um, from those involved in the uh, insurrection, who were saying, I think I left my phone in Speaker Pelosi's office if you <laughs> happen to find it. And the response was, oh, well, let me get your name and number and we will certainly call you back. Uh, yeah. And I just I, I love that that story. But well, there were a lot about, of good. There were a lot of good leads that police got. But it was interesting that you know, in in the realm of the mob riot that started as a demonstration, it started as a boisterous, angry demonstration, but it became a mob riot and one of the worst riots in American history when you think about it. But um, one of the things about it was there were people in there who really thought that they were just doing the will of the president. And they may not have been wrong, but they were saying, well, we were invited here. When the police officers told them, like, you can't go any further, you can't come in. They said, we were invited here by the president, by your boss. And they had, you know, at best, a kind of primitive understanding of the separation of powers, you know, that, as if Congress reports to the president. But that gets back to the 
fallacy we were discussing before. But calling up saying, you know, does Speaker Pelosi have a lost and found? Because I think I left my backpack there. I think, you know, that bespeaks that same attitude. Like this was, you know, like a civil war battle reenactment or a, like a, a, a rock show or something. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, I had to show my husband that paragraph when I was reading it because I was laughing out loud. Let me let me turn to one last thing that I wanted to raise. Uh, going back to being a law professor, and you had Stacy Plaskett. It was one of your students at American, and she ended up uh, being one of your um, you know co-managers in Impeachment 2.0. What was that? That must have been fantastic as a, a professor, having an experience of working that closely with one of your cherished students. Well, yeah, I mean, Stacy, Stacy was a dazzling student and she's a dazzling lawyer who, you know, has surpassed me in many ways. One of them, she always makes fun of me because she's got more seniority in Congress than I do. She was elected as the delegate from the Virgin Islands before I was elected to Congress. But also she was a prosecutor for many years and you could see her remarkable prosecutorial skills and her her speaking talent on display that day. And it, I was just beaming with pride. And I, I think I, it even spilled over. And I said a couple of things maybe I shouldn't have said about how proud I was of my, of my student. But I'm proud of many, many of my students and what they're doing in the world. And uh, they understand that, you know, being a lawyer, it's a journey. It's a journey. It's an adventure that you're on to try to make uh, the principles and the values of the law real in your life and in other people's lives. And so I'm just so proud of what she's done. One final question. So will the current Professor Raskin at Duke, uh, will we get this nomination through and uh, she'll be back in DC? Well, yeah, well, Sarah, <laughs> um, she, she's been commuting to, to Duke. And of course, uh, it's a sign of the times She's been twice confirmed by the Senate, once unanimously, once I think it was 95 to three, maybe 95 <laughs> to four, something like that. But now her, her nomination, like everything else here, is deeply partisan. And the Republicans are saying they're going to oppose her because of her views on climate change. It has nothing to do with your experience of trying to... Uh get their leader impeached, I'm, I'm assuming. But we wish your wife the best and we'll be rooting for her. I can't tell you, Congressman, how much we appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. It's been a true pleasure. And I, I do not lie when I say I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Um, I originally started it for to be prepared for today, but I wouldn't have been able to put it down. So I highly recommend it to, to our listeners and anyone who will listen to me. So thank you so much, not only for the book, but thank you for what you did for our country. We need people that will stand up to bullies. It's a, it's a hard thing to do. And yet when people start to do it and see that it can be done, maybe it can lead to more people doing that. So thank you for standing up to the bully. Even if this outcome wasn't exactly what you had hoped, I think it's progress. And I'm hopeful that we will see that progress moving forward and protect our democracy in the years to come. Well, thank you, Professor Jellum, very much for for your work and for um, your sensitive reading of my book. It means a lot to me. Thank you, Billy Joe Kaufman. I, I miss you. And I hope maybe one day I'll get to see you guys down there. Absolutely. Sounds terrific. And when we produce the podcast and make it live, of course, we'll send you the link. But we'll also share some of the charities that you've put together to remember Tommy. So. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you. We want to do good, too. So say hello to all.
Bye. Bye-bye. Wow, Billy Joe, that was a fantastic conversation. What a, what a truly remarkable man. Jamie was always just the greatest colleague. I miss working with him even today. Always fun. Uh, we would have those same conversations just in the school cafe. Well, watching his eyes light up as we talked about some of the topics was a joy and a pleasure. So thanks for suggesting it and for getting him to agree. And I look very much forward to seeing you on the next Talking Legal Ed. Talking Legal Ed is produced by David Ritchie in association with Panopticon Media. Editing by Tim Spishock and artwork by Kaylee Jellum. Please look for all our episodes wherever you find your podcasts.